This morning our scripture reading comes from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 26, 25. Um, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Oops, sorry, I started the wrong verse. Verse 19. Um, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves... Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Well, let me add a a welcome to you as well. My name is Tim, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, And happy Father's Day um, to you as well, if you're um, a father. uh, This morning, we... uh, we have kind of a relevant sermon for fathers, at least for me as a father, uh, which is we're, we're doing our last sermon in our Vices and Virtues series, and, uh, and this sermon is on, on anger and patience. Um, so maybe well-timed, that's not an implicit shot at you fathers, um, although it's one at me, so I'll take it. Uh, but let me, I'll pray for, um, for God's help, and then we'll jump in um, this morning. Let's pray. Father God, you, um, you are a merciful and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we want to be like that. I want to be like that. As a father, as just as a Christian, I want to be someone who's slow to anger, who's rich in mercy, who's overflowing with grace. God, we want to be those, those people, and so would you help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I used to be convinced that I was almost completely over an anger problem that was pretty significant when I was in high school. And then I got married. And I began to think, like, well, maybe, you know, marriage sort of reveals, like, maybe, maybe, like, deep inside myself, if the conditions are just right and the stars align in a certain way and my wife does something that I didn't want her to do, well, maybe in those, like, rare, limited circumstances, I might get angry, maybe, that's what I thought after I got, I got married, and, and then we had our first child, and then my capacity for explaining my anger went completely away, um, and then we had another child, and another child, and I'm no longer self-deceived about the capacity within myself to, for anger to flare up, and yet here's what I find so interesting about, about anger, which is that on the one hand, the Bible frequently descri- describes God as getting angry. The anger is, in that sense, unique among the vices. So we've looked at seven vices throughout our, our last um, eight weeks together. Um, but God is never described as being greedy, never described as given to gluttony, never lust, is never envious, never vainglorious. None of the, none of the other vices are ever uh, depictions or attributes of God. And yet God is described as angry at times in the Bible. Which means if God can get angry and God is good, then anger can, can actually be a good thing. And even more than that, if we're, if we're called to be like God, if we're made in the image of God, that means you and I at times, not just that anger is okay, but actually we, we should get angry if we are like God. Anger is not always wrong. 
And that's true. But on the other hand, almost any time in the New Testament our anger is mentioned, the authors say, get away fast. Run. Don't wait. Don't, don't delay in dealing with your anger. Get rid of it now. So why? Why, on the one hand, do the scriptures so freely depict God as, as righteously angry, and yet in our case tell us to run away as fast as we can? Why, why that difference? Well, that's the question I want to push into you this morning. And even though this, this is actually going to be a shorter sermon than usual, um, I actually have four points. They're going to be shorter, I promise, but four points. Um, one, why, why anger is not always wrong. Two, but, but my anger and your anger probably always is wrong. Three, how to overcome your anger with patience. And four, where good anger always leads. So first, why, why anger is not always wrong. And so to, to understand why there actually is a, a, a case for righteous anger within the scriptures, you have to understand that, that we, most all of our anger actually arises from, from love. That when God or Jesus is depicting as getting angry in the Bible, it's because there, there's something he, he loves at stake in his anger. And so there's a number of ways God's anger flares up in the Bible. There's two that are most prominent. The first is that God's, God's anger is typically directed towards injustice. And so when the vulnerable are trampled on, when the widow or the orphan go neglected, that's when God, uh, in, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, begins to be mentioned as getting angry. That when we fail to love or, or care for our neighbor, that's what arouses God's anger. But that's not just some random feeling he, he has. God gets angry when we mistreat our neighbors or the vulnerable because he loves human beings and he desires our flourishing. When so, so when human beings are trampled on, when human beings are not flourishing, God gets angry at that. God's anger in those cases are an instance of his love for human beings. Beings. That's one of the primary ways God gets angry in the, the Bible. Uh, another way is that um, God gets angry at, at suffering or, 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 or death itself. And so there's a moment in Jesus' life where uh, he goes to his, his dead friend Lazarus' funeral. And, and there's a couple of places where this word is used to describe Jesus, which in John eleven thirty eight, 38, this is what it says. It's the second time this word appears. Um, John eleven thirty eight 38 says, Then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb, came to where his friend Lazarus was buried. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Now, the word deeply moved there, is, it's used twice in John 11. First, when Jesus first comes to those who are mourning, and then secondly, when he comes to the tomb. But the word deeply moved, it's not a great translation. Um, it's sort of a, a soft translation, as if Jesus, he's moved in the moment. Actually, the word, it means indignation. Like, it's, Jesus is angry at this point, and, and he is... is Almost to the point, uh, the word can be used, almost to the point of, of hatred. Like, this isn't just a light word for anger. And so it's always been an interesting question to me. Like, why, if Jesus, um, if the story's true, assuming John 11 is true, and what happened there is, is really what happened, that Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is, he, why is the most angry word in all the New Testament used of Jesus in this moment? If he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And that's because Jesus has... A visceral reaction to death, like we have. 
Jesus had just got done saying, I am I'm life itself. If you know me, you won't die because I, I am life itself. Jesus created um, us to, to have life and to know life. God did not create this universe with the experience of death. And so death is, is our enemy. It's, it's an intrusion into a good creation. And so Jesus stands at, at a place of death, and he is, he is angry at it because he loves life. He loves us. And so a lot of what makes us angry, a lot, a lot of what is at the root of what makes us angry is, is our love of something. A friend lies to us and we get angry because it damages a relationship we care for, a person we love. There's a rift there. That makes us, that makes us angry. Or a child is, is mistreated or treaty, treated unfairly and, and we get angry because of that injustice. We see death and suffering and and we get angry, like Jesus, out of, out of love for other human beings, other, out of love for life. And so for me, the question this morning isn't like, will you get angry ever? The question is, is, listen, if you live long enough, you will get angry. And you're also going to have very good reasons to get angry. So we get angry because we love. And if you're never getting angry, it's a sign you're actually actually emotionally closed off to the universe, to the world, to the people around you. If you never get angry, then, then that's a sign you're actually probably never loving because anger is ultimately an expression of love. Which is why anger is not always, always wrong. And yet James says two things here. He says, one, be slow to anger. It should take a long time before you actually become angry. And then secondly, that he follows it up with a warning, which is that Anger will not lead to the righteousness of God. What he means by that is he's saying anger will not lead you to a good life. If you're an angry person, you will not be a good person. And so get away from it. So point one, anger is not always wrong. But point two, uh, my anger, your anger, it's probably always wrong. Because if, if anger is aroused by, by what we love, then it, then it raises a question. What does is, what is my anger, what does your anger tell you about what you love? What does my anger tell me about what I love? Ultimately, our anger is a good diagnostic for what we, what we care about most in life. But so think about it. Like this week, what did you get angry at? Like don't say that out loud, actually. It's a hypothetical, it's a rhetorical question. Like that wasn't a moment for you to, to pipe in. Uh, but, but if you kept an anger journal, what, what would be, be on it? I'll, I'll, I'll just give you mine. This is the most recent um, uh, to, uh, in my own mind. Um, so I, we went, went back to Indianapolis this week and... And so we drove uh, I-70 from Indianapolis back to uh, Kansas City. And, and I don't know if what it is, but for some reason between I-70 in St. Louis and I-70 in Kansas City, um, people think that, like, it's okay to drive, like, 15, 20 under the speed limit in the left lane. Um, and it's, it, is, it is good to be angry at people who do that. That is righteous <laughs> and just. But the reality is, like, I'm not angry because people are breaking, like, rules of the road that God himself has written somewhere in the Bible, I just haven't found them yet. Like, it's not, I'm not angry at the end. I'm angry because, like, there's a time I want to get home by so that my kids get home in time, so that they eat dinner on time, so that our family has a normal experience. Like, I'm angry because people are in my way and preventing the day I have planned for myself. But the most of the time, my anger reveals what I love most, and what I love most is me. At the American Psychological Association, when they say uh, most people have an anger problem, um, they have an anger problem because they live with the assumption that things ought to go my way. That's the root of much of our, our anger. It's, it's we love ourselves most, and there are all these people who get in the way of us. 
in our desires and our dreams and our hopes. And especially the, the closer someone is to you, the more they're going to get in the way of what you want. Your spouse is going to get in the way of what you want. Your kids are going to get in the way of what you want. And that's why James says, listen, you, you can't start at anger and get to righteousness. That, that doesn't work. That's why Paul in Ephesians 4 says, if you're angry, don't let the sun go down on it. Deal with it before you go to sleep. Because if you don't, the devil's going to have a foothold. Here, here's what he says, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, be angry, right? It's okay to be angry, but do not sin. But he doesn't stop there. Then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. He's saying deal, you have to deal with your anger right now. That being angry is, is not sinful in and of itself. It's, it's, there's something there that may actually be good, but... But if you wait to deal with it, probably what's going to happen is the thing you're angry at, even if it's a good thing, is going to be slowly replaced by your own self-love. Uh, let me illustrate that with, with this story. My, uh, Missy and I, we have a friend who, uh, who has legitimate reasons for being, for being angry with, with her parents. And I'm not talking like normal, like we parents, we all, to some degree, we're sinners. We fail our kids in certain ways. Like that's just, that's normal stuff. There's stuff here that's beyond normal, normal parent fail sin Stuff. She has a, a cause, a reason to be angry with, with her parents. And so naturally, she's talked a lot to Missy, to me, about, you know, should I just cut my parents out of my life? Should I just say goodbye um, to them forever? But she can't. And recently, she had a really revealing conversation with Missy where she said, I can't cut my parents out of my life, and here's, here's the reason why. And, and this is what she said. She said, I want to keep my parents in my life now because that's the way I can do them the most harm. So I can hurt them the most. And actually, I found that ref that honesty actually very refreshing because that's actually what we do with a lot of our anger is we we use it to harm other people, to hurt them. Um, and yet, Missy and I we're we're third party observers here, and what we what we were seeing happening in our friend is that the very person she despised her parents for being, the very person her parents were to her, she's becoming. The anger is taking root in her, and it's growing and expanding, and it's becoming everything that she hates in her parents. And we see her now as a mother, and we fear that she will do the same thing to her, um, her ch children that her parents did to her. That's what, that's what anger does in us. It's, it may even start with something good, a legitimate grievance. Someone's hurt you. Someone has done something to you that's wrong, but you, you, let, it, you let it dwell in you. You let it grow, you let it take over, and, and suddenly the thing that was good about your anger, the thing that's right about your anger, it's, it's, it's gone. It's got, and all that's replaced is self-love and, and making the other person pay and, and, and exacting vengeance. And so Frederick Buechner, when he, was, when he was reflecting on anger, he saw this tendency in us. And here's what he says. He says, of all the deadly seven, of, all, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last morsel both the pain you are giving and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. That's why James is, is warning you about Listen, even if, it's, even if you have good reason, you have to, you have to get rid of it. You, it. you can't start with anger and end in righteousness. You, it's not going to work. You, you cannot start as an angry person and get your way to a good 
life. And so that raises the question, okay, so how are we to deal with our anger? What does it mean to be slow to anger? How do we become slow with anger? How do we overcome anger with, with patience? Because traditionally, Christians have said, if, if you don't want to be consumed by the vice of anger, you need to cultivate the virtue of, of patience. And so here, James, James says a couple of things to push us towards a life of patience and away from a life of anger. And the first thing he does is he gives us a real, uh, to me, a really good practical definition of what patience looks like, what a life free of anger looks like. He says, a patient person or someone who's not given to anger is quick to hear, is slow to speak, and slow to anger. So let's unpack those one at a time. First, quick, quick to hear. Now, typically, the, the word quick here, it's used, it's referred to someone who's afraid of something, like a ghost or a lion um, in the scriptures, and they run away as fast as they can. And James is saying that's the intensity with which you should listen to, to others. You should, listen, you should be a listening person, and to, to give you an image, think of running away from something that terrifies you. That's the intensity and the focus with which you should listen so that you don't become angry. So quick to hear first. Second is, is slow to speak. And it doesn't mean that a patient person never speaks or that, um, um, that anger means, or to be free of anger means never speaking. But it does mean that, that our, our words should be taken with thought and with care. That the angry person says whatever they want, whatever comes to mind, whatever floats up, to get something off their chest, to get at the person who has angered them. But a patient word, a patient person uses words with intentionality, right? You're slow. Before you say something, you, you're going to mean with everything in you what it is you're about to say. And what you're about to say, you want to do, to do love and grace to the person you're speaking it to. The right after Paul talks about anger in Ephesians 4, he goes to words next. And he says, uh, let no unwholesome, let no unkind talk come out of your mouth. Only what, is, what gives grace to those who hear. So a patient person is quick to hear, it's slow to speak, and thirdly, slow to anger. And this is where we roll our eyes. Like, okay, be slow to anger. Um, how? And here's where James gives advice that I think is just going to be really underwhelming to us. Because basically what James said is you need, you, like, what you need to do is you need to read and live your Bible. He says, don't be angry. And if, what you need to do is you need to, to hear the word, which, which clearly means the scriptures in this piece, and you need to do the word. And I realize that's underwhelming advice, right? Like, it'd be better if it was like, you know, like yoga practice, like, here's some breathing techniques. Like, that would all be better advice probably for most of us than what you need to do if you need to deal with your problem is you need to, you need to actually read and listen and hear the scriptures with an intent on actually living them out. And even though I, I realize it's underwhelming advice, there's three reasons why I think this actually works with respect to anger. Uh, that first, in the scriptures, you encounter a gospel that says, you, you are wrong. That a lot of our anger arises from the fact that we, we make ourselves the hero, we're right. Um, those who anger us, they're wrong. But the gospel completely undoes any chance of us living life this way. And I love the way that James even describes the way salvation works. He says... Right after he says, the anger of man doesn't produce righteousness of God, right? You can't start with anger and lead to a good life. So, therefore, put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness. And, and, and here's the important part. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That's so the first, you have, if you're going to receive the gospel, receive salvation, you have to be meek. You have to be humble. Right? You don't enter into the gospel saying, you know, I got, I've, I've studied all the rules. I figured all this thing out, and Jesus is right. That's not how you, you come in. 
with humility, but also you receive the implanted word. And I love that phrase because what James is doing, he's giving you a metaphor about how you become a Christian, which is this is how how you become a Christian. A word that you didn't want gets forced into you against your will. The gospel, the good news, this good word, you didn't want it, so God literally just implanted it in you. He forced it in you. And I can't, listen, I can't speak for you, but I'm often angriest when I know I am right. And I know, I, I know that the path I see going forward is a better path than whatever it is someone else around me has decided. And what that is, is a feeling of superiority. It's a feeling of, of I'm right, they're, they're wrong. And the gospel gets rid of all of that. Even when you are right, you're, you still are skeptical that you're right. And the reality is feeling superior, feeling like, like you're right, others are wrong, that is all fuel for a fire to make you an angrier person. And the gospel removes all that. You can't think that if you're a Christian. It gives you a completely different outlook on life. How, how was I saved? How are you saved if you're a Christian? Well, because God forced you in, into something you didn't want a part of. And even though you're called to receive that word, right, there is an active reality in which we are called to, to receive our salvation. The, the irony shouldn't be lost on this. You, you didn't come up with this word. It was implanted in you. Right? A soil doesn't, doesn't brag about the plant that is produced. The seed produces life, and God has put the seed in you. So first, the, the gospel, it, it says you're wrong. And I think that helps take away the fuel to the fire to our anger. Um, secondly, you encounter a God who is, is just. The things that, that make us rightfully angry, um, God is going to deal with all of those things. And throughout the scriptures, we're told, listen, you need to leave vengeance to God. He sees everything. He will make all things right. You can trust him. He is not, whatever has, has caused you harm in life, he has, it is not lost on him. He sees it. And when you immerse yourself in the scriptures, you see again and again, God cares for what no one else sees. I mean, if you read the story of the Bible, you're going to find God interjecting himself into to places and moments and situations that everyone else forgets about, but he doesn't. That ultimately the cries of the afflicted, they are heard. And you don't have to nurse your anger against those who have hurt you because God will make that right. He will, he will give you justice. He will, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And if you're not regularly engaged in the story of the Bible, you're going to forget this and you're going to start thinking you're the one who's driving your own life. You need to make right whatever's wrong for you. But the reality is the Christian, we can give our anger to God because he sees Oh, God is just. We don't have to live in anger because he will take care of all of the things that rightfully anger us. And thirdly and most important, in the scriptures you, you encounter a God who is himself slow to anger. Now when James tells us you, you need to be slow to anger, he's not just making that phrase up. He's actually referring to a passage in the, old, in the Hebrew scriptures in Exodus 34. It's a passage that's actually quoted um, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, you find it in a number of different places. And when Moses wanted to know who God really was, this is what God said to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6. God said to Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When you begin to see that this is, this is how God is towards you. He is slow to anger. He's rich in love towards you. Rich in mercy. Rich in grace. When you can begin to, to rest that that is who God is for you, you can be that for other people. 
who maybe rightfully make you quick to anger, who sin against you, and you have every reason to, to respond in the moment with a harsh word or an anger. And then, but then you have to enter back into the story of Scripture. That's not how God responded to you or to me. He is slow to anger. He is rich in love. And the more you see him live out his, his character in the story of Scripture, the more you become that type of person. So maybe, maybe you hear that and think, okay, Tim, I've read the Bible. I'm still angry. This doesn't help. Um, and I get it, me too. But, but once, once you understand the gospel, um, once you really enter the gospel, really, really hear the word. Remember, James isn't just saying listen to it. He's saying hear it. There is a move that begins to happen in your life. And here's where I would just say, if that's you, if you're sitting there, you know, I know, I know the Bible and that's, it's not made any difference. Then I think actually James, James's warning should be a, a sense of, of, of bigger height to you or a bigger warning because the reality is you and I, we have a level of biblical knowledge available to us that is unlike any, uh, any Christian culture or any um, um, Jewish culture in, in the history of the world. I mean, right now you could drive home and you could... Uh, thumb through thousands of podcasts with great preachers who are preaching the word, who, who are teaching the Bible. You have an uh, endless number of books available to you on Amazon to better teach you. Our problem is not that we need more information. Our problem is that we don't, we don't, we don't take in the information that we already have and say, okay, I, I have enough information. I just need to pause and live it. And, and what I'm saying now is, you know God is slow to anger. You have something probably to work on for the rest of your life. You actually don't need to know anything else about the Bible for the rest of your life. You have enough. Go and do it, James says. You've heard God is slow to anger. He's rich in love. Now go and do that. Go and live that. And to help you go and do that, to live that, I think there's, there's, two, there's two questions I think that are worth asking yourself as you diagnose and you think through your own anger. The first being is that what, what are you angry at? What am I angry at? When you get angry, what is it? What's there? And don't leave any st stone un unturned there. They, I mean, for me, right, it's, it's, it could be something small my, kid, my kids do for me. They get in the way or they, they spill something. And I, like, a, a level of anger rises up that's not, that's not typical um, for other things that are that, that small. Why, why is that there? Push in. Ask. Because Tim, Yell Tim Keller uses this illustration of a, of a seed um, with respect to anger. That, that an entire tree is within a seed. But a seed needs the right the right soil, the right context, the right, the right help to go, go from a seed into the full tree. And, and, and what he says about anger is that you and I, in our little moments of anger that seem insignificant to us, it seems like, oh, I can just overlook that. What he, what he would say, and I agree, I think this is right, and my friend, and Missy and I, our friend, and, and her anger towards her parents, this is true. Um, the whole tree is in the seed. All of the, 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 most, war, the most terrible things that, that could be true about anger, they're all there in your little bouts, in the smallest moments of anger. The seed is there. And if it, if it gets the right ground, if it gets the right soil, it could grow into something to where anger is taking over your life. It's controlling you in a way that, um, that is far more significant than the little moments and warnings you get now. So what is it that you're angry at? Why? Push in. What is it that you love that you need to reorder your love? You need to... Right? For me, it's I, I love myself too much. I love my schedule too much. I love my priorities too much. And when people get in the way of that, I get angry. And th those loves need to go and lower themselves if my anger is to be in control. So what do you get angry at? And the other question is, where, where does your anger take you? And this is the question I want to want to end, that, that bad anger always leads a certain direction and good anger always leads a certain direction. Because bad anger always leads to, to basically me getting something off my chest. 
me to assert my power, to make my points. Because sinful anger ultimately, I, I think, has self-love at the center of it. And so anytime uh, anger is out of control and it's, it's rooted in self-love, what's going to happen is that, that I'm going to lash out and make other people pay for what they have done to me or what I perceive them to have done to me. The bad anger almost always leads to the other person paying and me making them pay in some way. It could be small. It's just something like a, a harsh word to my kids in a moment. It could be something bigger than that, a well-crafted dig at, at my spouse or at a close friend, someone I work with. The reality is all sinful anger, I think, is, is, is coming from a place of self-love and to make others pay for the harm that you experience. And Jesus, of course, he does the exact opposite of this. The gospel narrative, the gospel story is that he doesn't make us pay. He pays for all the wrongs that we have, have done. So the center of the gospel, the center of our story, the center of the storyline of Scripture, the, the thing James wants you to hear, to be quick to hear, that story at the center of it is, is a God dying for his enemies, praying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And yes, even though Jesus, he does get angry, it's always out of an others-centered love, which means his righteous anger leads him not to a place of condemning and lashing out, and, and getting what's his and, and, and speaking against us, but it, it leads him to a cross. His love is others-centered, and so his, his anger doesn't lead him to a place of selfishness. It leads him to a place of selflessness, to a place where he dies for others, to die for us. And so if, you're, if your anger leads you to do that, it's probably good. If your anger leads you to a place to suffer for those who, who are frustrating you, and to give of yourself to them, to give up your rights, and to, to serve them, and to love them, to even die for them, then your anger is probably righteous and good, and you should, you should dwell in that. But it's probably not, right? And so what we need is, is the gospel story, that a pro- precisely the moment God should have been angriest at us, we put his son on a cross. At that moment, God was not pouring out his anger onto us. He was pouring out his salvation onto us. And if you want to be that, that type of person, you need to be quick to hear. You need to listen to him. Listen to his story. Hear his word because he is slow to anger. He is rich in mercy, rich in grace. And he wants to make you into that person too. Let's pray. God, we pause and we thank you that... Um, the words of, of Psalm 103 are, are true, that you are our Father, and as our Father, you are, you are slow to anger, you're rich in love, that as far as the east is from the west, you've removed our transgressions from us, you've showed compassion to us, you know our frame, you know we are dust, and yet, yet you come and serve, you come and die. For us, you don't pour out your anger onto us. And so I pray now, God, would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to see that in you, that we ourselves would become people who, who are slow to anger and rich in love? We ask in Jesus' name.